0: Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm
1: Margaret Flinter.
0: Well, Margaret, as we look around the country, we're starting to see some more promising signs uh, around the online insurance marketplaces. According to some independent analysis, there's been a dramatic Decrease in the number of errors on the back end of the healthcare.gov website, especially where it uh, syncs with insurance companies. That had been the most plagued part of the system up until now.
1: Well, Mark, I can't help thinking about uh, one of our old favorite Beatles songs. It's getting better all the time. And I think it's going to take just a little more time. And we have a few days left. Folks who want to be covered by the first of the year of 2014 have just a short time. The deadline for signing up for coverage is December 23rd. And remember, open enrollment continues through April 15th. But if you are one of those people who want to be
0: covered on January 1, act now. And, Margaret, while the news has generally been good regarding the state-based exchanges, there are still some problems to iron out. But the good news, and we say it each day as we've been doing an enrollment, people are coming in to learn more about uh, their insurance opportunities and for the most part, I think they walk away with a smile on their face.
1: And you know, there is some similarity to what happened back with the rollout of Medicare Part mm-hmm. D, which, of course, has really been wildly successful in most people's eyes. I remember back then, uh, seniors thought they had completed the application; might have still been some confusion. But I believe uh, if they had enrolled, that was honored on the start date. So we expect we'll see that happen here. I too. think
0: I think you're absolutely right, and we'll keep our eyes on the prize, which is to make sure that millions of uninsured Americans uh, gain coverage.
1: Well, that December 23rd end date brings us right up to uh, it'll be the anniversary on December 24 of the third year since the Affordable Care Act was passed by Congress. And, of course, speaking of the holidays, we have a little bit of a treat for our listeners. Uh, A little something different. We've never featured a young pre-college person on the show, but we've come across a very remarkable young man who we think is poised to do some amazing things with his
0: scientific curiosity. Jack Andraka has been gaining global attention since winning uh, last year's Intel Science and Engineering Award for a device he created that can diagnose early-stage pancreatic cancer. He's been a frequent guest at the White House. He was awarded by the Vatican. He's been described as the prodigy of pancreatic cancer by the Smithsonian and is the only teen to have been invited to speak at the Royal College of Physicians.
1: And he began this groundbreaking career in research when he was 13, He's all of 16 years old now and making waves in scientific circles. Very exciting to see what a young scientist is able to accomplish, uh, somewhat with the help of the Internet, but really with a giant dose of discipline and curiosity.
0: Laurie Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. will be stopping by to shine a spotlight on misstatements about health policy spoken in the public domain. And no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by Googling CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, please contact us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love hearing from you.
1: We'll get to our interview with Jack Andrejka in just a
0: moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's Headline News.
2: I'm Mariano here with these healthcare headlines. Business is picking up at healthcare.gov. They're in a critical mass phase as the year winds down, and there have been some notable changes since the recalibration and overhaul of the site, namely its functioning. CMS officials saying the site is easily handling a million visits or more a day. And there's another significant change that was criticized in the original design. Folks can now shop online for plans before having to commit all their information to the site, making for more user-friendly experience, according to Consumer Reports, which has been monitoring the exchanges. Meanwhile, there are still some problems erupting on some of the state exchanges. Maryland's exchange director quit over snafus with that site. The D.C. Exchange has been battling operational issues, and California has been publicly sharing names of customers accidentally. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, awash in a challenging rollout of the Federal Exchange, has decided to give medical practices more time to adapt to another deadline, pushing the Stage 2 meaningful use requirements for health IT up to 2016 and Stage 3 to 2017. The extension is meant to give more time to focus efforts on enhanced patient engagement, interoperability, and health information exchange as well. Interoperability continues to be a problem plaguing wide-scale adoption of health IT across the country, and many stakeholders and others have called for Stage 2's implementation to be delayed, including the American Medical Association, American Hospital Association, and American Academy of Family Physicians. And it's that time again, Congress winding down and pressure picking up for recalibration of the SGR formula used for Medicare reimbursements to providers and practices. A proposed fix being considered by Congress would cost $116 billion over 10 years. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office's original estimate of the so-called DOC fix had been closer to $300 billion. The new figure is a result of slowing of Medicare spending growth projected over the next 10 years. If a solution isn't worked out before the end of the year, doctors treating Medicare patients could see a 27% cut in their reimbursement after the first of the year. And a decision has been made in Connecticut. A judge has temporarily blocked United Healthcare from being allowed to drop 2200 physicians from its Medicare Advantage plan in Connecticut. And several Connecticut-based medical societies filed suit against the insurer saying it would deliberately compromise care being delivered to seniors who are in their patient population. Ohio and New York are considering similar action. United Healthcare says it will fight the decision. Meanwhile, there are vacancies across the country for medical professionals in all disciplines. A recent study shows doctor and nurse shortages at hospitals across the country are approaching 20 percent. A study done by the health staffing firm AMN Healthcare shows the vacancy rates have tripled in the past four years. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these health care headlines.
0: We're speaking today with Jack Andraka, 16-year-old inventor, scientist, and cancer researcher. He's the recipient of the 2012 Gordon E. Moore Award, a grand prize of the Intel International Science and Engineering Fair, for his work in developing a new method to detect early-stage pancreatic and other cancers. Mr. Andraka has won the first youth achievement, Smithsonian American Ingenuity Award for his breakthrough work, as well as the White House Distinction and Open Science Champion Change Award for promoting open science. This Maryland high school junior has been called the teen prodigy of pancreatic cancer by the Smithsonian Institute. Jack, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Hey, great to be here. Well, we're glad you're here, and we're excited about the great work that you've done. And you've created what's uh, being described as a potential game-changer in detecting early-stage pancreatic, ovarian, lung, and other hard-to-detect cancers. And your research began at the age of 13. Don't know why it took you so long to get underway, but... Uh, uh, and by age 15, you created this simple uh, device that has earned you so much international acclaim, a dipstick with nanotube fibers that detect proteins present in early-stage pancreatic cancer. And it's been described as both simple and elegant by scientists with far more extensive training and experience. So tell our listeners how you decided to tackle something that has eluded cancer researchers for decades. And where did you get the idea that led to the creation of this device?
3: I became interested in pancreatic cancer when I was 13, when a close family friend who was like an uncle to me actually passed away from the cancer. And Then when I dug a bit deeper on the internet, I found that 85% of all pancreatic cancer patients are diagnosed at a late stage when they have less than a 2% chance of survival, And then I realized that our current method of detection is six years old and costs $800 as grossly inaccurate, missing 30% of all pancreatic cancers. And so I wanted to do something about this. So after months and months of just researching all these different topics using Google and Wikipedia, I finally had this breakthrough in my high school biology class. Whereas reading an article on what are called single-walled carbon nanotubes, and those are long, thin pipes of carbon that are an atom thick, and they're 150,000th the diameter of your hair, so they're very, very small, and they have these amazing properties, and they're kind of like the superheroes of material science. So I was reading this article on their properties while well, we were learning about what are called antibodies, or molecules that only react with one specific protein. In this case, a cancer biomarker that's found in your bloodstream when you have these different cancers. And they thought, maybe if I combine these two concepts, then I'll get something cool out of it. Because essentially, you have a network that would only react with one specific protein, but would also change the electrical properties based on the amount of protein present. And I thought that could indicate the presence of pancreatic cancer, that change in electrical properties.
1: Well, Jack, I think you've called this approach to research a combination of insatiable curiosity and maybe some youthful optimism. Uh, I would think we could safely throw in a solid dose of uh, rigor and creativity and hard work. But I'm really curious, uh, you referenced your uh, high school biology class, I think, that you were in, and I don't know a lot about the educational system you were in at the time. But when you look at your education, when you look at the setting uh, and the way American education is set up for science right now, what does your epiphany uh, teach you about how we can train the next generation of scientists? It sounds like you had some pretty good resources and mentors and uh, support there in pursuing your own creative scientific inquiry.
3: So um, up until I got into the lab, like, All of my procedure was my own. All of my ideas were my own. And so what I really think that we should allow kids to do is do more hands-on activities, design their own experiments. Science fair is a great step in the right direction, but I think we should really integrate that into our classrooms a lot more because science isn't just banal regurgitation of facts. It's about exploring and, like, satisfying your curiosity. And I think by showing kids that that's what it really is, then we'll have a lot more interest in the field.
0: You know, Jack, at the health center, we have a a saying that uh, we're sort of at the garage phase of innovation. And, uh, you know, garages are always a great place to get things percolating. But actually, you conducted most of your research since early childhood in your parents' kitchen. Uh, then you later got uh, into the basement where you and your brother were sent after some pretty risky experiments uh, were conducted. And I believe you have successfully created E. coli and nitroglycerin in some of your early home experiments. And that one standing rule it's your home, maybe your mom's or your dad's, is don't burn down the house. It just sounds like a... Good, uh, 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 a good adage here. Uh, you knew this cancer detection experiment needed to be conducted, though, in legitimate labs if you were going to be able to take it to the next phase. So tell our listeners how, how you uh, went about finding a reputable lab that would work with you to explore sort of your untested scientific theories and tell us about that process and the sort of rejections that you experienced and ultimately the collaboration that you uh, came upon. So Once I
3: got um, this idea in my bio class, I essentially wrote up a 32-page behemoth of a document outlining my procedure, data, like everything, and then I emailed it actually to 200 different professors at Johns Hopkins University and the National Institutes of Health, and I got those emails from going through the entire faculty directory and finding people whose research interests were pancreatic cancer. so. It was a very arduous and long process, however, eventually got through it, and I sent out those 200 emails asking if I could work in their lab, and I got 199 rejections, and I realized a lot of professors aren't nearly as nice as their glowing profile pictures make them look, <laughs> and finally, I got into one lab, or I got a maybe from Dr. Anurban Maitra of Johns Hopkins University, and... Essentially, he said, okay, you can come in for a short interview. So I go in, and an hour later, after getting fiercely interrogated by him and his postdoctoral students, I finally got the law of space I needed and I could start doing work. And then seven months later, I came up with this one small paper sensor that costs three cents and takes five minutes to run.
1: So, Jack, I appreciate you've had that experience of uh, having to do 200 hits, so to speak, to get one positive response because it's kind of emblematic of what we face in making progress uh, in medicine and in science and in clinical medicine in particular. And Somebody or other has probably quoted to you the statistic that it takes about 17 years to go from the bench to the bedside, if you heard that one Mm -hmm. along the way, right? So we make a discovery and then, you know, I, of course, optimistically would like to believe that that's been shortening and shortening since we've had access to better technology. But for sure, you've, you've made an incredible uh, discovery, innovation for all of us who are clinicians that have uh, seen the tragedy of late-stage diagnoses of ovarian and pancreatic cancer. Obviously, the benefit is huge. But to get into mainstream clinical practice, to be considered for inclusion on the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, or to be considered the gold standard for screening, as you know, is another whole discipline in some ways. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about your journey. Uh, since making the hard science breakthrough, what's the path to actually bringing it to fruition in the world of people and healthcare?
3: So currently how we're going about this is I have the international patent on the technology and I'm in talks with several large biotech companies about getting it on the market as soon as possible. And um, essentially what is going to be happening is we're going to be licensing it to one of those companies, hopefully. And then they will take it to the market. And how it's really going to play out in the regulatory process is we're probably going to register it as a medical device because that's a much shorter approval process than, say, like a drug, for example. Drugs take forever to get through the regulatory process. While these um, medical devices can take as short as two years, however, with mine, it will probably be at least five to ten years before we see it on the market.
0: We're speaking today with Jack Andreka, 16-year-old inventor, scientist, and cancer researcher. He's the recipient of the 2012 Gordon E. Moore Award, uh, the Grand Prize of the Intel International Science and Engineering Fair, for his work in developing a new, rapid, and inexpensive method for detecting early-stage pancreatic ovarian and lung. Cancer. Mr. Andreka is also leading the only teen team entering in the $10 million Qualcomm Tricorder X Prize competition seeking to develop wireless diagnostic technologies that will put healthcare monitoring power in the consumers' hands. So, Jack, tell us a little bit about your team. Uh, You are up against 300 well-funded scientific teams to win the X Prize uh, competition, and the winners will be chosen sometime in mid-2015. So, we'd love to hear more about your team. It's called uh, Gen Z, I think it is, and, and your approach to this challenge, and what sort of advantages have uh, growing up uh, with technology as digital natives have given your team over researchers that who've honed their skills uh, before the advent of the internet. Do you think it's going to give you an edge on it or uh, all hands on deck? It's going to be a very tough competition.
3: Well, of course, it's going to be a tough competition. There are 300 of the best and brightest teams from around the world competing for this $10 million prize. However, I think my team has a really good chance about getting into the finals and maybe even winning it, but you never know. So my team is constructed of all teenagers and we're from all over the world and right now we have five team members and we're going to be, we're currently refining all technologies. However, I really can't disclose too much just because of patent law. And so I think really that our advantage that my team has comes from the fact that we all are all teens and we grew up with this technology. But also because we're young, we really haven't been kind of pigeonholed into a certain way of thinking. Because when you sit in the field for a bit too long, you might begin to start thinking in this one certain way. And an outsider's look at a problem can often lead to great solutions. I mean, I had no, like when I began this project, I had no clue what pancreas was. And I was able to develop a new way to attack pancreatic cancer. And that's why I really think that my team has going for it, which seems a bit counterintuitive, is that we don't have any degrees and we really have no formal education in this field. However, we're going to give it a shot and see what we can do.
0: Do you have a website that people can follow you at on that?
3: So right now we're trying to create a website. However, you can follow me at at JackAndreica on Twitter to get updates on it, as well as my Facebook page, JackAndreica.
1: Somehow, Jack, I have a feeling we're going to be seeing the movie about this competition in the not-too-distant future. Um, and if, if that's the case, then this next question may become part of the irrelevant past. But I was struck by a comment that you made in an interview with Dr. Francis Collins, the director of the National Institutes of Health and a former guest on the show, somebody we admire very much. And you said that your accomplishment was really no big deal. There's millions of potentially groundbreaking innovators and scientists around the world who are ready to make similar breakthroughs if they only had access to open source scientific papers. Now, I don't know if uh, you're speaking of the experience that many of us who uh, do research have had of you read an incredible abstract that you found on PubMed and you go looking for the full article only to find out it's proprietary and there's a $45 fee or a $50 fee, which certainly when you're looking at hundreds of articles uh, can add up. And you noted that your quest for research data was really cost prohibitive for you and revealed the presence of a scientific data aristocracy. What did you mean by that? And as you think about creating the future for yourself and others as scientists, what would you like to see done about that?
3: Yeah, so over the course of this process, one of the greatest adversities was actually these scientific paywalls because, you see, I'm 15 years old, I don't have that much money, so it was really hard to get access to a lot of the articles I needed. And because of that inhibitive cost, it really prevented me from doing some of the research that I really needed to do in order to gain the background I needed. And I think this holds true for pretty much all young scientists, is that we simply don't have the mind to afford these articles. So really, we've kind of created this barrier between the youth and science, because, I mean, look at it this way. A Katy Perry single is 99 cents, but a seminal Science article is $35. We see all these big sum initiatives, but when that's there, I mean, that's a bit of a mixed message as our priorities, because... We should make the world of science just as accessible as the world of pop culture and music, because if we don't, we're going to have a bunch of Kim Kardashian's and Miley Cyrus's twerking it out, and that's not going to solve the world health crisis. I think that by opening scientific data, this not only will help teenagers, this will really help everyone, because recently Harvard stated, well, we simply can't afford continuing a lot of our subscriptions because they've become so expensive. And that's going to inhibit a lot of life-saving and potentially groundbreaking research. And I don't think that we should segregate research by how much money you're getting funded by because ideas don't discriminate who they come to. So why should we discriminate who we're giving knowledge to?
0: Those are great points. And, you know, back to Katy Perry, she had her big contest on uh, the Ro- people doing her Roar uh, video, and uh, hundreds of people sort of participated in that from all over the world. And I'm wondering. You know, as a 15-year-old, how do you make things more accessible in the science world? You know, certainly having that information. But for some people, they're just trying to find the door handle. You sort of conceptualize the whole room inside the door. Uh, So what are some advices that you might give to uh, your brethrens of your age Uh, the Gen uh, Z crowd in terms of uh, ways to start thinking about science or get engaged, or what are you thinking about in that area?
3: I think the best way to really get interested into science is get hands-on. So just do some experiments. I mean, once you start, you'll realize they're not nearly as bad as you think they are. They're actually really fun because science isn't about coming up with life-saving treatments and stuff. That's a byproduct of science, but science is really satisfying your curiosity And you never know the result of a scientific experiment. You're just trying to see if your hypothesis will be true. And some of the greatest scientific discoveries have been found when your hypothesis is actually false. So I think that by realizing that it's okay to fail in science and that by just starting to do scientific experiments, people will really begin to see that. Science is a lot more fun than a lot of the public thinks it is.
1: Well, Jack, I think one of the the fun, exciting, rewarding elements of making breakthroughs and and doing the kind of science you have, developing the test uh, that you did for early pancreatic ovarian cancer and other cancers, is that you get to then begin to build upon that work and to pull the thread, go back even before that. I would imagine when you spoke with uh, Dr. Francis Collins, the genetics of those cancers was part of the conversation. I'm just going to make a bet that that was part of the conversation. So I'm curious where you think your work will take you as you think about this. Or does it lead you to want to go further upstream in terms of genetics or prevention, even earlier detection? Does it make you want to go further downstream to better treatment modalities? Where do you see yourself continuing to do your work?
3: So currently I'm just focusing on the Tricor Prize, And in terms of my future plans, I really have no clue what I to do when I grow up. And so it's all an open question for me, but I guess I have a bit of time to decide.
0: We've been speaking today with uh, Jack Andraka, 16-year-old inventor, scientist, and cancer researcher, recipient of the 2012 Grand Prize of the Intel International Science and Engineering Fair for his work in developing a new rapid and inexpensive method for detecting early stage pancreatic, ovarian, and lung cancer. You can learn more about his work by going to jackandraka.net. That's A N D R A K A.net. You can also follow him on Facebook and Twitter. Jack, looking forward to uh, more of your success. And thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations on Healthcare.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: Conversations on healthcare. We want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week?
4: Well, several readers have asked us whether the Affordable Care Act restricts insurance coverage of mammography. The answer is no. In fact, the law requires insurers to cover mammograms without any cost sharing every one to two years for women starting at age 40. For women with Medicare, the law increased coverage. Medicare now fully pays for yearly mammograms starting at age 40. Despite what some of our readers may have heard, there is no cutoff or upper age limit for mammograms to be covered through Medicare. We called the American Cancer Society, the nonprofit Medicare Rights Center, and the American Geriatric Society, and none had heard of any issues or complaints of seniors being denied mammograms. So where does this false rumor come from? At least some of the claims are misinterpretations of 2009 recommendations from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. The task force is a volunteer panel of primary care physicians and preventive medicine experts. They made the controversial recommendation that biennial mammography screening should begin at age 50. For women younger than 50, the panel said the decision to have a mammogram was an individual choice. For women 75 and older, the panel said evidence wasn't available to determine benefits versus harms. The panel did not say that women under 50 or over 50 shouldn't get mammograms at all. The 2009 recommendations were rejected by some cancer groups and they were specifically rejected by the Affordable Care Act, which again requires full coverage of mammograms as a standard preventive benefit starting at age 40.
1: Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Smoking continues to be the number one preventable cause of premature death in this country, leading to over 440,000 deaths per year. And while quitting remains a challenge to most smokers, the tobacco industry continues to spend billions of dollars on promotion and lobbying. A new study released by the International Tobacco Control Policy Evaluation Project shows that putting graphic warning labels on the outside of cigarette packs leads to significant reduction in the number of smokers.
5: In the late 90s, there was a concerted effort to really put the graphic images of what it's really like to get a smoking related disease on to warning labels um, on cigarettes, Dr.
1: Jeffrey Fong of the University of Waterloo in Canada conducted the study analyzing Canada's smoking cessation rates from the year two thousand when Canada began ordering that a third of the cigarette pack be reserved for graphic images of diseased hearts and blackened lungs through two thousand and nine. The data showed a marked decrease in the number of smokers during that time, attributed largely to the presence of the graphic images in conjunction with strict smoking laws. We
5: examined the period of time in Canada, uh, nine years before the graphic warning labels came out, and then compared it to the nine years afterwards. And what we found was there was a sharp decline in the smoking rates after the warning labels compared to before. And we compared it to that same period of time in the united states where there was no change in warning labels so we had in essence a kind of a control country and it showed that the decline in smoking rates after the warning labels in canada were much greater than for that same period of time in the United States where there was no change.
1: Dr. Fong noted that when the FDA was given a directive to initiate policies that would lead to decreased smoking rates, it was given inconclusive data on the effectiveness of the use of such graphic images on cigarettes sold in America, so the practice was not initiated here, and he thinks that was a missed opportunity. Based on the Canadian numbers, Fong and his colleagues estimate that a similar program in the U.S. would lead to a dramatic reduction in the number of smokers here, as has been shown in Canada and other countries around the world who have initiated a similar practice. The relative
5: reduction was between 12 and 20%. So if you take the smoking rates in the United States, in 2012, the smoking rates were about 23% in the United States. And so if you reduce that percentage by 12 uh, and 20%, you get between 5.3 and 8.6 million fewer smokers in the United States if they were to apply graphic warning labels of the type that uh, Canada
1: put out. Placing graphic images of body parts that have been damaged and diseased by smoking, providing a visual deterrent to regular smokers and a graphic visual warning to young people considering smoking, something that could potentially lead to millions of Americans quitting and very likely prolonging their lives, now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter.
0: And
2: I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare, broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University. Streaming live at WESUFM.org and brought to you by the Community Health Center.